The unspeakable place. There are places and things that human eyes should not see, let alone try to comprehend. No man, woman, or non-binary individual has ever travelled to these locations and lived to tell the tale. No man, that is, except one. Funty Quack is an unassuming gentleman from Twistleton. He spends his hours outside of lecturing at Shittleton Bugabry Polytechnic, ensconced in his one true love, searching for proof of undiscovered nations and knowledge, the acronym of which adorned his ever-present leather-bound journal, into which he was constantly scribbling, an acronym which was unfortunately spunk. He cut an unassuming figure and kept himself to himself, Himself, of course, being the name of his cocker spaniel, he had no intention of sharing himself with his ex-wife following the divorce. Not that she cared, for she was always closer to her. Her, of course, being the name of her pet cat, a tabby with incredibly distended testicles. For many moons, Funty Quack had been voraciously hunting down titbits of information regarding an ancient civilization known as Thoth Asothoth Ephoth. However, only a single reference to this place existed. It was in the final entries of a diary found buried in the icy tundra of the extreme north, the diary of a lost explorer named Bobby Hovercraft. The final entries of this diary read thus, It is bloody freezing. My guide, the tribesman known as Dickie Ticker, who bears an uncanny resemblance to the Scottish snooker player Stephen Hendry, had said that it would be nippy when we embarked on this journey but I really wish he had been more specific as to how cold it would actually get. I popped on my sky-blue plastic sports Mac, and he looked at me and said, No, it'll be really cold. So I put the hood up and asked him again if that was okay, to which he merely shrugged and intimated that he didn't care. Here, though, as the temperature dropped ever increasingly into minus figures, I must admit that I wish I'd at least changed into jeans from my Bermuda shorts and had boots and thick winter socks on instead of one jelly sandal and a flip-flop on my hands. Another strange thing of note is that Dicky Ticker seems somewhat peculiar. When we were travelling here, firstly by train, then horse and carriage, and finally sled until the wolves died of exhaustion and were promptly eaten, each time I looked at him he seemed different. On the train, whilst he was in his bed, I looked over at him to see if he was sleeping so that I could have a w so that I could turn off the lights to have a w to get some sleep myself. And he looked the absolute spit of Jimmy Wilwind White. Then later in the carriage he was doing a crossword, and in the moonlight I could have sworn that it was Peter Ebden. Now, as we trudge through the snow, he is the absolute doppelganger of Cliff Thorburn. It's bizarre. Anywho, bracing myself against the whipping winds and blinding snow, I trudged onwards into the white static and tried to make it to our goal, the fabled lost city of Thoth Asothothafoth. The next entry in the diary was later that same evening. Dickie Ticker is close to death. He slipped on a frozen bear shit and hit his head on the corner of a marble sink incongruously left discarded in this icy wilderness. It is absolutely Baltic outside, and he keeps gesturing behind me. I think he wants me to do his jacket up, put the blanket over him, and zip up the tent, but I can't be sure, so I won't. I'll tell you what, though, in this fading evening light, he doesn't half look like John Parrott. As sad as I am to see my friend die out here in this vast nothingness, I was more terrified of how I'd find the fabled lost city alone. We were also running low on supplies. As I fished around in our bags for what was left, my stomach rumbled. I took stock of what meagre rations we had. 
a bottle of Prince Consort Vodka, a litre of Strawberries and Cream Limited Edition Baileys, half a bottle of Ginger Christmas Gin Liqueur in a bottle that had a little light on the bottom, five cans of Breakers Lager, some Romanian Pinot Grigio, a flask of Midori and a can of Green Cola Panda Pop. For food it was even worse. A selection box of hot sauces from around the world, which included the titles of Botty Botherer, The Devil's Fists, Death's Breath, Crikey Moses, and one that wasn't named as such, but instead had a big red X drawn across an exposed cartoon arse. The only other consumables were some gravy browning, dark soy sauce, and some corn flour. I thought of mixing them all together into a paste and eating them, but then I noticed that the only toilet roll we had left was the menu from a Chinese takeaway I'd nicked weeks back, and it was laminated. In a pinch, I suppose I could peel the labels off things and try to use those to wipe my ass. But in the end, I thought I'd just wait for Dickie Ticker to finally die, and then I'd shave his head and use his clothes and hair woven into a sheet to wipe my bum instead. I again glanced at his dying fawn. Christ, he really does look like Ronnie O'Sullivan. When I woke the next morning, someone, or something, had clearly visited us in the night and ravaged the tent. The bottles were empty and smashed, and the food had seemingly been ravenously devoured. The mysterious visitor had also apparently attempted to eat my deceased friend, but had stopped after one bite. Whoever, or whatever it was, they'd obviously made me ingest some sort of possibly magic powder, as I felt poisoned with a thick headache, a horrible taste in my mouth, dodgy guts, and an incredible thirst. They'd also spewed all over me and urinated on my clothes. I was clearly at risk of further attack, and so I pulled on my coat and staggered outside, not before glancing into the tent one final time at the face of Dickie Ticker, who now, in death, reminded me of Willie Thorne. It was almost impossible to make progress. I'd lost my guide, and my sodden, violated clothing stuck to my skin. I was going to freeze to death, unless... and, and then I saw it. The lost city of thoth a thoth 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 Suddenly, I realised that there was something enormous looming above the city, lumbering towards me, something alive. Some kind of... what was it? A behemoth? A vision? A hallucination? A god? It was... indescribable. If I had to explain it in words, I couldn't. It was beyond my comprehension. It was outside of the realms of physical understanding. I couldn't say what it looked like. There aren't words to facilitate the flow of text that I would need to fully capture what I was witnessing. There was no way I could take note in any form, written or verbal, to pass on any scrap of information to begin to put forward what I was witnessing. Some may say infuriatingly so. If I had to imagine a single author writing a series of books about similar encounters, each leading up to a crescendo which wouldn't be adequately put down on ink and paper, such as my current scenario, I can imagine it would not only be formulaic, but excruciating for the reader. Anyway, back to this huge horizon-spanning beast. It was... well, words fail me. The diary ends. Funty Quack closed the tome, thinking it was bizarre that Bobby Hovercraft had stopped writing as if he had been attacked or some such, but the final passages were written in the past tense, meaning that he'd obviously survived what he saw and had written about it afterwards, and then chosen to end the text at an awkward time. Odd. As Funty packed his things to head to the lost city of Thothasothothothothoth, there was a knock at his door. Who could it be at this hour? Opening the heavy wooden door, 
A shadowy figure stood in the darkness. Funty Quack? Yes, Funty responded. Where you are going, you'll need a guide. But how could you possibly know where I'm going? I haven't spoken a word of this to anyone. The figure stepped forward into the light of Funty Quack's hallway. Oh, you'll find that I know a lot of things. But Funty didn't hear those words. He was screaming, wide-eyed in madness and clawing at his face. For standing before him was Dennis Taylor. Enjoyed that as much as as much as I enjoyed writing it. Like the spooky Halloween Halloween tale, isn't it? <laughs> I realised after I'd done it that um, there's no mention at all of movies or actors, which kind of goes against the theme of the podcast. But I, I was so happy that I thought well, you say that. But I, as as the words were being spoken, I could almost visualise it as a film. So I think the adaptation rights are. Just around the corner. Oh, so it's sort of like an unwritten adaptation. I think so. Uh, so that, that makes perfect sense. So, yeah, yes, well, the Kido Kingdom 62, and that was our 2022 spooky Halloween tale. Um, and th- there's a lot going on this race. But it's actually, when, I was, when we were booted up and I was, yes, doing another update to Skype, which it seems to save as like a little treat for me just before we, we do these podcasts. It literally reinstalls it every time I click on it. Uh, yeah, it's, you, you, you you turn Skype off and you turn it back on. And da, 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 there's an update. There's an update, of course. Um, so yeah, I but just to say that I was um, I've uh, we, we've got a lot going on. So it's been a month. It's been almost a month to the day, which is what I was going to say. Blimey. that rhymed. Um, and yeah, so that was the the Halloween story, the uns- that unspeakable place. Also, mm-hmm. oh, I just want to go through as well something that tickled me recently. Um, it, it was my brother writes for the website I write for, Games Freezer, uh, like a video game website, and he's covering for us uh, an adaptation, a loose adaptation, I'd wager, of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, mm. and they made a game of it. And uh, my brother Transvaal was was just doing some research. He said before I played the video game, I, I watched the film, and he was looking up details on IMDb. And one of the taglines for the films was a Hitchcock thriller. You should see it from the beginning. And he said, I don't think the marketing team spent very long trying to come up with that tagline. And I thought, no, they, I don't think they have, because you tr- really, you, ideally, I think if you spoke to any actor or director throughout an, any time period, they'd say, yeah, we prefer you to watch the film from the start. <laughs> well, that's kind of just a basic assumption, really. I would have thought of the audience that they're going to watch, actually watch it from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, maybe... Maybe films like from Hitchcock's period, maybe they just had a load of like irrelevant uh, activity going on in the first 10, 15 minutes of the film. And only then does the actual film kick in. (laughs) Just a load of people milling around doing nothing in particular, just going about their day. But yeah, I I thought that was um, a bit of a weird one. 
And before we get into the Arkinstar, I was once on a family holiday recently, and um, obviously being a family holiday in, in Britain, I, I was the, the the game of bingo was brought to my attention. I didn't play it myself, but it just it just got me thinking. And um, for I, I mean I know we have listeners in America. Hello to all, but bingo. I don't know if it's a if it's a worldwide game, but it's, I guess it's primarily a British game where you have these balls in like a you know in a wheel that you sort of roll around and then each time a ball comes out you have to mark it off your scorecard and the first one to get all of the numbers marked off the scorecard wins and it it, of course being uh, like a bloody mid last century british game it's just got a load of really silly terminology and i knew a couple like you know when they call it the numbers it's like um was it you know i'm trying to i'm looking at them now but um, it's like, you know, legs 11, uh, 12, one dozen. And then you've got 55 snakes alive, 57 Heinz varieties. Uh, and then you've got like number one, Kelly's eye. Pff, don't know what that means. Two, one little duck, I guess, because it kind of looks like a duck. Three, cup mm. of tea. So some of them rhyme. Okay, but what, yeah. I was, what I was thinking is I had this idea of like we could do like a Kino Kingdom bingo or like a Kino King, Kino bingo kino kingo whatever we'll think of an idea later on <laughs> kino kingo um and just see if we can how come if we can get from one to 90 you using rhyming slang either for like you know like number one clive dunn or you've oh. got like number one but then the rhyming slang in bingo is, is isn't like you know, number one da 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 dun it's number one kelly's eye so you could what what's an actor or a film or a director that, that rhymes with i Oh, number one, Stephen Fry, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I just thought how fun would it be able to like over a period of episodes build up to and run through the full ninety. So if if anyone gets and we could even have like a live give of Kino Kingdom Bingo. If anyone um, if anyone yeah wants to you know put anything forwards, um, it's the men who talk at outlook.com and. Um, and we'll we'll piece them all together. You know, you can come up with a few. I'll come up with a few, and we'll get them all yeah. there. Some of these, Rupert. Um, sixty-three, tickle me, sixty-three, sixty-four, red raw, and then you've got like twenty-one, royal salute. What? Is a fifteen, young and keen. Fifty, half a century. Some of them are just like just just, just explaining what the number is. Fact, isn't it? More than anything, but. Uh... So, but we yeah. we're looking for so the movie related ones. So something like uh, all the threes, Gary Sinise. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly like that. Right. Uh, so yeah, four and of... seven, Brenda Blethyn. <laughs> Half rhymes are even. Half rhymes are accepted. <laughs> um, so yeah, to, to move on to the. Um, the Arkansas. Uh, so last last episode, it was John Turturro to Dominic Purcell, or vice versa. And we had a few responses. So we had uh, Ben said, "Okay, here comes the three stepper." And um, there's a lot of comments here in brackets. So it's Dominic Purcell brackets had to look at a picture. Was in Blade Trinity brackets. Crap, save for the line, you cock juggling thundercunt. With Ryan brackets, I'm a bit snarky. Me Reynolds, who is an RIPD brackets, also crap. With Jeff Bridges, sequel to that, by the way. They're making a sequel to RIPD. I'm saying. There, there was one good line in that film, 
where I think Jeff Bridges is driving and he's like sat in such a way that he's got like, like he's holding the wheel really gingerly with like his thumb and forefinger and he's facing sideways and he's got like his like leg almost like up on the back seats and he's just facing Ryan Reynolds or frowning at him. And Ryan Reynolds says, you're, you're driving very casually. And <laughs> it's the best line in the film. He's clearly not paying attention to the road. Um, yeah, RIPD also crap with Jeff Bridges, who was in the Big Lebowski brackets. Finally, a good movie with John Turturro. There's enough brackets to hold up a lot of shelves there, but that's my submission. So that's a three-stepper from Ben. Uh, Laszlo Bucket says, Hiya, I've got a three-stepper this week. If only I'd watched more Dominic Purcell films, said no one ever. John Turturro was in the Big Lebowski with Jeff Bridges, who was in RIPD with Ryan Reynolds, who was in Blade Trinity with Dominic Purcell. So it's literally the other way around, which is cool. Uh, Max came in with multiple entries. I think he was just trying to not blow his own brains out by, like, desperately trying to get a two-stepper. <coughs> so it was, I'll go through these quickly. <coughs> it's Dominic Purcell was in Killer Elite with Clive Owen, who was in Children of Men with Michael Caine, who was in Tenet with Robert Pattinson, who was in Batman by John Turturro. That's four steps. Or Dominic Purcell was in Killer Elite with Clive Owen, who was in The International with Naomi Watts, who was in King Kong with Andy Serkis, who was in Batman with John Turturro, another four-stepper. Or Dominic Purcell was in Blade Trinity with Ryan Reynolds, in R.I.P.G. with Jeff Bridges, who was in Big Lebowski with John Turturro. Uh, So, and then the winner. Actually, I think you should do yours before I... Do the winner. I'm surprised there hasn't been a two-stepper yet, but I'm guessing that the winner probably is a two-stepper. I certainly couldn't get a two-stepper. Okay. Um, but I You're, crap seen... at this. You're crap at the game that you invented, by the way. <laughs> I've seen a surprising amount of Dominic Purcell films purely because <laughs> I've watched so many Uwe Boll films, but he, <laughs> Dominic Purcell is in Assault on Wall Street with uh, Edward Furlong, who's in Terminator 2 with Arnie, who's in Collateral Damage with John Turturro. Nice. That's That's a little three-stepper. Well, obviously, Utah Smith has been awkward and sent in another voicemail, but this is his two-stepper. Oh. Yeah, so there you go. It's Dominic Purcell to Robert De Niro in Killer Elite to uh, John Chaturro. What just happened with Robert De Niro? Two-stepper. It's not often that someone mentions what just happened on this podcast because it's it was a bizarrely tedious film, that one. Uh, it, felt, it felt like an absolute non-entity when I was watching it. It just it just felt like a load of mates, like mm. really bored mates throwing a film together. Um, maybe 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 it's due for reassessment, you know, like um, like Killer Elite was last episode. But I just remember watching it and just feeling bored. And maybe it's a film you have to be in a specific mood with. Have you seen that? What just happened? Uh, no, it's got one of those really bland titles where it's almost encouraging you to say it in a certain way. That bothers me. I think it's got a question mark in it as well. Is it yeah. really? So you've it's, really, it's literally a, got to say it. There's another, there's a film on my list where, where it's like that as well. So it's, it's a strange one, isn't it? Because you think, you know, you've got a film with Robert De Niro in, and it's one of those films where he's, I think from memory, he's like a producer and he's all high flying and everyone respects him. And then through a series of like quite bland events, he loses that. And it's just him coming to terms with, you know, himself being out of the limelight. It's just a really kind of flat story. But, um, but yeah, you think, so what should we call the film? What just happened? What was that? Who is this? Remember that man? You know, these aren't titles. They're just like statements that some would say as they point out of a Who train window. <laughs> what is happening? Why am I? Um, <laughs> when are you? That was probably what you say if you were speaking to a time traveler, if someone rang you on a, on a magic phone. So when are you? 
I suppose that was the only time you'd ever say those words. Yeah, it's <coughs> not going to crop up, is it? Not in our lifetimes, I don't think. But it could do, I suppose, if they came back in time, then it could happen any time. Yes, yeah, sure, that's a good point, actually. I stand corrected. Anyway, what's next? Okay. We've got to talk about horror movies, really. We've got to talk, this is the Halloween episode. And we've got to talk about horror movies, but um, you've had your usual Hollywood horror binge, but there's been five films that we've watched together, all of which are horror. And I didn't know if you wanted to go through those first. What, Alien Intruder? Is that a horror movie? Well, yeah, we'll we'll start off with that now that you've said it. Now (laughs) I've uttered the words. Alien Intruder is. Um, do you want to? Well, I get the details up to to look at myself. Do you want to do a quick synopsis? Or um, the only problem with Alien Intruder is that I only watched it after a day of drinking, so I don't really remember much about it. It's. Um, I it's watched this film called Sober. I'll try to fill you in, Ruben. Okay. I, all I know, all I know is it's a it's like an action sci-fi film from the early nineties. Uh, it's a PM entertainment film, and it's got Billy D. Williams in it. And well, it involves, I seem to remember, it's like on a prison ship and these guys, they're in some kind of, um, uh, it's like a test scenario where they can go into like vir- a virtual reality world and live out their sexual fantasies. But there's like this temptress woman in the fantasy world who intends to kill them something well the, the thing is you, you you've described it that way right? and that is kind of the main thrust of the film but it is not it's not built as that bizarrely as a load of men wanking into test tubes in space it, it's like maxwell caulfield billy d williams and tracy scoggins is aerial the sort of siren is after them but at the start <coughs> it's they, they send up there because in sort of uh it, it's it's presented that this team in space who are building this organism or whatever um <clears throat> not an alien have of basically one of them's gone bonkers and killed the rest of them and has been put in an insane asylum and billy d williams is like right let's get a crew together and go back up there to see what happened so it's kind of like an event horizon sort of thing effectively but that's not what the film is about that's just sort of the, the loose premise because when he gets all these sort of convicts who are on death row anyway to go up there and and then they just stop fancying Tracy Scoggins, who appears to them and just says, I fancy you. And I'll mm-hmm. go and kill everyone. And they're like, oh, OK. But of course, even that isn't the main thrust of the film, because every night after they do like the boring sort of work where they just mill around smoking fags, looking out of the window and stuff and all go to bed in these giant uh, sort of pods, they put in this virtual world you just mentioned. And they and it's just these soft core sex fantasies mm-hmm. it, it, with, <laughs> it, with like Vaseline smeared all over the lenses just in like a well, one is in like a wild west one is in like a biker bar thing and it's just like it just looks like footage from other films these people happen to be in spliced together yes. and the and i don't know if you remember the ending is so it's so flat the way that it just says oh better end now then yeah and then it just wraps itself up what i found really disappointing actually <clears throat> we're going to talk about the most important thing of the film which is at the start when the first crew were going bonkers is the in the future by the way right which is and he's 2022, trying... by the way. Oh, so it's actually now. Set in 2022. I, I'm going to try and describe this as best I can. There's a man standing up 
and he's typing like really quickly um, onto this futuristic keyboard to, to stop whatever this thing off screen is trying to hurt them, Tracy Scoggins. And the way the future computer computers, keyboards and monitors are set up is if you imagine you're standing up and you've got your palms up flat with your wrists bent back so far that it hurts so that the keyboard is kind of vertical in front of you. So you're typing with like really awkwardly like completely flat against it like you've got your hands against two panes of glass yeah it's effectively that, like having a, a a keyboard on like a monitor brace isn't it really yeah so but like, sort of like hanging in midair hanging midair but like at almost just above waist height like belly height and the monitor is at chest height like below him off to his left <laughs> but still completely vertical so he's like leaning back slightly to see it and i thought like how is that the future that's just rsi waiting to happen is what that is it's uh, that's repetitive strain injury for those not in the know. But it, I, I, what I, my favourite <laughs> part of the film was when someone would shoot a laser at someone else and they'd have a point of view shot on the laser beam firing towards them. But of course, it's just a camera moving towards them. And so it, let's face it, a laser goes at the speed of light. That's kind of the point. That is not going at the speed of light. That is crawling towards its enemy. It's ridiculous. It's like the, P- the POV shots of Howling 2, the Curse of Stirba, um, where, yeah, it's just like a case, like it's supposed to be a werewolf attacking someone, but it's just basically someone holding a camera and running at Jimmy Nail. Brilliant. Um, the Howling 2 was your sister as a werewolf. Was there, no, I think there's another your sister is a wolf, but it, there's like a another subtitle in another region called like the Curse of Stirbo or something like that. Um, that's the one where the bloke's just smoking a fag in a cemetery. Says, "Oh, your sister was killed by a werewolf," and the guy just leaves the funeral and just completely gets on board with everything he's saying. Um, whereas you just say, "Can you piss off and leave me grief? That'd be great." The film would have been different. Um, but yeah, another thing about this is I watched this to the end, to the unbelievable end, where uh, Maxwell Caulfield has got someone else, and they're trying to attack Billy D. Williams. And the Billy Dee Williams is, is in the exact same room that the, f- the film kicks off in. And it's just like, you know, there's no like practical rooms in this. They're just rooms with like tanks in or like a PC on the wall. Just this, nothing. So he's in this kind of like um, the gantry in this sort of warehouse. And Maxwell Caulfield says to this guy, sneak up and shoot him from above and I'll, I'll distract him. So they're in this like sort of pitched firefight at the bottom, really boring firefight where they're just sort of standing there and shooting and just looking straight ahead. Um, and, and then... He shouts like now and Billy D. Williams looks up and just shoots the bloke, kills him straight away because the guy that's supposed to be doing the surprise attack is on the top level on this country balancing on like the, the barricade and facing the wrong way. He's like facing like he's climbed up and then turned around to face the wall. So he just shoots him and he just falls on backwards. And I thought, when would you? It must have been really hard to get into that position and impractical. Impressive if someone's failure. I don't think anyone in the military has ever thought or oh, I think the best way for me to attack the man straight in front of me is to climb up on the fence between us and stand on the top and turn around. I, I don't think that's a military maneuver. So yeah, it, in summary it's a very very bad film, which is disappointing a, for us cuz it's PM entertainment and they usually if they stick to their wheelhouse, which is <coughs> car chases and gunfights in, a, in LA. Yeah, yeah. Um, brilliant. It's going to space I, in 2022. Whew. I think that um, this film, uh, PM Entertainment, I think that if we look at a film by them and it's set in what was then modern day LA, I think it'll be good because it'll have the budget to film on location and have some explosions. And if it's anywhere else, it's going to be bad. Yeah. 
because they've kind of they're not working with their strengths as you say so the alien intruder generally like a very boring film as well considering it's got it's supposed to have aliens in it and like laser gun fights and like topless women it's just really boring it's it's quite astonishing that it's got all those ingredients and it still manages to be boring um yeah so that was not not a recommended horror movie um what else did we watch <clears throat> the first power we the I've first heard. power which we have covered on this podcast before but just to remind people this is the one it's sort of like a noirish horror movie with lou diamond phillips that's this is set in la i think uh horror movie from early 90s with lou diamond phillips and crucially jeff coba as the bad guy as the killer in it who seems to have magical powers um, but he's really good, really menacing in it. Um, yeah, it's a strange he, film. This he he is. Lou Diamond Phillips is a weird one. Just he's he's so young in this, and he's just got like a weird face, basically. But but with um yeah, is it Jeff Cober? Yeah, he he is a really. He reminded me of um the Sandman, a play by Patrick Kilpatrick in oh god. What was that film with John Claude Van Damme where he smashes his head on a pipe at the end to kill him? Uh, he, he's got that kind of Brian Thompson in Cobra vibe, like truly, yes. like like teeth grittingly, jowl shakingly insane. Yeah. So yeah. it is it's a really good film. It is a really good action. Music by, music by Stuart Copeland. The oh, Stuart yeah. Copeland. Of course. Um, that's the other thing. The music in Alien Intruder is absolutely diabolical as well absolutely diabolical so yeah the first part we've talked about before and that was um that was that was good fun that is good yeah. fun if you can get hold of it it's just a good cast yeah that, then we watched scanner cop <clears throat> oh yeah so we're moving through the 90s gradually this is four <laughs> i think um so this is a spin-off of obviously the scanners films which started david cronenberg's movie in I guess the early to mid-ish 80s yeah I think so. and um so yeah this is a spin-off this 90s spin-off and it basically it's about a kid it starts off with a, a kid's crazy dad being killed by the cops and his dad is a scanner so he's able to like well the rules aren't completely clear on what their skills are but essentially sort of uh he's got psychic abilities and the ability and telekinetic abilities as well in terms of being able to like actually damage people's brains through telekinesis so yeah so the kid witnesses this and he's he's taken under the wing of a cop so the kid then becomes a cop 20 years later or whatever he's now a cop and he's having to like suppress his scanner abilities uh by taking these pills but when uh this evil guy starts well he's kind of manipulating people into believing that like cops are actually giant insects and stuff and they're coming to kill him so the people end up killing the cops so it's like oh my goodness we've got to do something here but they they've got no leads so scanner cop needs to stop taking his drugs and start scanning some people <laughs> so that you can get to the bottom of what's going on um so it's basically really it's like it's sort of like detective protocol type stuff for half of it and the other half is people staring at each other quivering 
that's pretty much it. With Tosh from the Bill saying, go on, son. <laughs> scan him hard. Scan, scan it. But yeah, yeah, we're going to ask you to do some scanning, so you might want to pop a nappy on because you're going to be doing some furious turns in. Yeah. Again, it was it was kind of fun. And again, it's got that 90s uh, LA vibe going on. Um, I just, I'm trying to think about it. Yeah, and it was really weird because the main, the main antagonist in it has got, we couldn't work out if it was, he, had, he was a very weird looking man. Like a very weird looking man. So if if he it was like had had like an accident or if he was it was in weird makeup, his skin looked very like shiny, like it had healed. Um, his name's Richard Lynch, and we worked out that at the time he would have he was only in his mid fifties. So and yet he seemed to be made up to look about eighty. It was very odd. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't know whether he'd had some sort of reconstructive surgery or something, but anyway. But you know he's a decent bad guy, and it's it's like a kind of really dumbass version of Scanners. Really, it just takes the idea and people's heads explode and stuff. It's good fun. And it's LA in the early nineties, so you know what you want really. And then we watched the Night Flyer, Stephen King's. I, I want to say ninety seven, or is it ninety nine? Correct. Ninety seven is it? Yes. That's what I said. I didn't even suggest ninety nine, so I don't know where that came from. And this is um, a film about, uh, I think, I I wanted to say this was my favourite of the night. Because I, I liked all of the films we watched, including the next one we're going to talk about. But I don't know if you want to talk about the premise first. I was quite taken by this. Night Flyer is a bit of a strange, it was based on a short story by Stephen King, I think. And it's um, it's about a killer who's sort of roaming the US in a, small private plane um and he roams at night and he lands and in these small towns and stuff and sucks the blood of whoever like is stupid enough to walk up to his plane really and so um now miguel ferrer who this is a rare starring role for miguel ferrer plays the most unpleasant journalist in the entire world he's a tabloid reporter and he um and he's on the trail of this killer, reluctantly on the trail of this killer. And yeah, so and he be- gets obsessed basically with following this killer around and trying to find out what happens. So and he's and what I like about this movie. Well, there's a lot I like about this movie. It's like it's got some good gore in it, but it's also like a kind of detective thriller as well. And it's got good atmosphere. And Miguel Ferrer is so good. And such an unpleasant character in it. It's quite hilarious. And um, and I like the ending. I think it's quite clever the way it, it kind of works itself out in the end. So it's worth it. And, of course, it's all really building up to when you actually see the killer itself, even though it's on the poster, which is a bit disappointing. But it's pretty cool when that happens. Yeah, I I just think that um like it resolves itself really nicely and there's there's a nice it, it kind of ties itself up in a nice little bow which a lot of Stephen King books well I I really don't like his books because they just they just like overly verbose for no reason um but but this was a short story so maybe maybe it was better than the rest of his stuff it's not to my tastes but I, I remember watching this when it first when I was working in the video store in in 1907 and it and and I thought that's all right but watching it again. Like Miguel Ferrer is such a good screen presence. He's got he's got a fantastic voice, 
and he is such a prick in this film. There's like no re- no redemption for him, and it, everyone is just so dismissive of everyone he talks to, and so and condescending. Yet it's, all, it's all with a purpose. When it yeah, ends, so that, it, that's what works quite well about it. And um, yeah, I don't think there's not many actors who could get away with it. I guess because at that point, wow. I mean, Miguel Ferrer does play pricks really well. So I think about his best roles in like Robocop and, and Traffic and things like that. He does that smarmy prick thing really very well. And yeah. in this, it's just, he gets to carry a whole film with it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I really did like The Night Flyer. That was um, one of my favourites of the night. Another one, uh, I don't know if you want to talk about, the, the, the last one we watched of our little Halloween get-together yeah. was, was Psycho 2. So I don't know if you want to do a little preamble to it. Psycho 2 was made like 23 years after the original uh, with uh, Anthony Perkins returning to the role. And it's it's basically like as if sort of like was a real time chronology. So he's done his time uh, uh, and he's now coming out and he's returning to the Bates Motel under kind of supervision and... So he returns to the motel and gets a job um, at the local diner. And when he's at the local diner, he meets a lady called Mary, played by the lovely Meg Tilly. And she is oddly attached to him. And she ends up coming to stay. And she ends up staying for like the rest of the time, basically. So she comes to stay with him. She's got nowhere else to stay. And they become very close He's quite a strange chap, <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> to put it mildly, and there are those who really, really don't trust him because obviously of what happened at the motel years before, uh, not least the sister of Janet Lee's character, uh, who's obsessed with trying to take take him down um, or, or prove that he's hasn't changed etc so it all becomes uh sort of like a it's almost like a cat and mouse game with his sanity really that the more the more she's uh this crazy lady tries to kind of uh, torment him uh the less he trusts his own mind and it gets to a point where it's not clear like actually who is doing what, who is doing the killing, who is doing the voyeur type creepy stuff in the house. Um, and it gets quite absurd towards the end, but it's very, it's beautifully made. It's it's shot by Dean Cundy, who worked with John Carpenter a lot. So it's really beautiful, clean images, nice set design. I think it's a set from the original film as well, um, which is cool. Um it does get quite absurd towards the end, I won't lie. I think that um, it, it, what you sort of hinted at then was you've got Meg, Meg Tilly walking around saying, oh, he's just a misunderstood guy. He's just a, like a nice guy. And then you've got other people saying, oh, there's something wrong with him. Something strange with that Norman. And no one says, actually a murderer. Actually a convicted murderer. No one just says it out loud. <laughs> um, but um, when, it, um, when it comes towards the end, like... Yeah, because we'd had a few beers as well, and and like, you're watching it, and and Norman Perkins, I thought he was like he, I thought he played it really well because he he is almost like a man 
like completely at war with his own mind, like not sure what's right. So it kind of feels almost like he's a like a clown, almost like like he's kind of not like he's medicated up, but sort of not knowing who to trust, not knowing what you're trying trying to fit in, but knowing he's a bit different, but trying not to. He's like, no, I'm not crazy, but then he's constantly been proven to be crazy. So it is quite a complex role, really. Yeah. And then and as it goes on, it does. I did feel like in the last 15, 20 minutes, it kind of felt farcical where it's like this is very silly stuff now but i was still kind of happy with it at the end when it, i was like okay i'm glad you i'm glad you ended then and and, and the, where he is where he ends up at the end i don't really want to spoil it because if no one's seen this then you know, it's definitely worth a goosey i know and this is what i and it's this is trouble because I, I i do have some thoughts about this because i did think about it and i i feel like we need maybe a spoiler section here or something because i really want to yeah put forward my defense of the film and mary at this point okay oh yeah sure so we say like oh skip forward uh let's, let's yeah. try and do it in like a minute so oh okay okay so this is a spoiler minute for psycho 2 okay I'll, I'll shut up and let you spoil away okay so the idea is so the idea is is that mary is it, it turns out that she's actually employed to be there uh uh, she's actually the daughter of um, the uh, Janet Lee's sister, sort of thing. So she's that's why she's enthusiastic to stay, and and it seems far fetched when she feels sympathy for Norman. But you've got to consider this, right? Mary is herself a product of her relationship with her mother, because her aunt, the shower victim, was killed around the same time that Mary was born. So. All Mary has ever known is her mother's obsessive need for revenge uh, on Norman Bates. And so this is a woman who's spent over two decades plotting to make someone kill themselves. And she's willing to do it by killing actual people. So her mum is bonkers. And then when Norman tells her uh, he killed his mum, age 12, it's kind of like the seed that grows in Mary's mind when you think about it. Because on some level, Mary is jealous that Norman took action to take out his own mother. And on some even deeper, darker level, Mary sticks around in the motel because she actually wants Norman to remove her mother from her life. So Mary is torn between this sort of genuine belief that Norman is recovered, but also the knowledge that he may be the only one with the motive and the ability and the opportunity to do what she could never do, which is kill her own mother. So I think it's actually quite cleverly framed. That's a, a spoiler time over, obviously, but um, spoiler time is over. Um, no, that's cool. I mean, I, I mean, I enjoyed it on the level. I watched it, but yeah, it's nice that you put that extra thought into it and uh, came up with that. Yeah, I can, I can see how that works. Do you think though that that well, we can't really discuss it any further? But would would you say? That the level of what you've, the the level of, well, the multi layer multi layering in what you've just said in the screenplay, does that come forward in the film? I'm not sure. Does it stand up to close scrutiny? Well, it stands up to close scrutiny, but it doesn't really stand up to immediate scrutiny, which is probably a weakness in itself. Uh, but I do think, I do genuinely think that element is there. Whether it comes across, not so sure. He's written by. I want to say Tom Holland, the guy, not that one, uh, the guy who made Fright Night. And so, you know, so and created, I think, directed the first Chucky film as well. So he's a smart guy who knows what he's doing when it comes to horror. 
So I do think there's genuinely a, a layer there. Okay, and and I've got um before we go on to the your, your horror section, I just want to ask this because again we when we were away uh, recently we watched Alien Intruder, we also watched a Godfrey Hole f- film, everyone's first Godfrey Hole film, which was which is really nice, um called Magnificent Natural Fists, and I was so so drunk and I think I went to bed <laughs> halfway through it, so I have no idea what happened. But, um, you missed the, the best bit at the end. So, what, do you, can you can you can you remember enough to talk about it? Or even if go- even if I had been sober, I I remember watching it. I the plot made absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> it just it, literally no sense whatsoever. There were whole Cla- subplots. Class- classic Godfrey. <laughs> There's a whole subplot about this kind of female temple, which um, which. They were kind of building something up for the first 20 minutes and then they just never went back to it, just never came back. It's essentially, it's a really shoddy um, kung fu movie set in, well, just like one of three sets, really. It's just different people fighting each other. Everyone fights each other constantly whenever they come come across each other. It's a period piece, I guess. Uh, I mean, the fights aren't that badly choreographed. The editing is shockingly bad um but yeah the ending where it's uh he's fighting the bad, main bad guy who suddenly reveals that he's got an extendable arm <laughs> never referenced before that um Classic Godfrey. but the way he kills him is horrendous because it's like he um the guy's got like one of those little blades and you know in the toe of his boot um kind of, like you kick someone with like uh to kill him and he he ends up on top of the guy and he grabs his leg, the one with the bladed boot on it, and like bends his leg so far up as he can stab the guy in the throat. Like it's horrendous, like way to kill someone. But pretty cool. It's the best bit of the movie. And, and then is is there like a really like long denouement then where it sort of like you know wraps up all the plots together? No, freeze frame gone. <laughs> Back to the main DVD title screen. Yeah. I've learned I've learned this about t- well, <clears throat> I think there's a well, two things. One is it looks like with Godfrey, the um the whole ending thing. It's like he's got a bit of a knack for these like the last five minutes just for to lose his mind because in the last film I watched with Transvaal, which was again like a, an old kung fu movie from the early eighties that this was, it was relatively standard I would say in yeah. Godfrey O terms. And at the end of course he starts shoving his fingers in people's belly buttons and vibrating to recharge. And then just constantly attacking people's groins all the time. So it's just like, but not for the whole film, just for the last two minutes. I was going to say before we move on to the horror stuff, with Godfrey Ho, I've come to the conclusion that like his most enjoyable films, the ones that are truly bonkers and make no sense and therefore are the most entertaining, are not the ones period pieces in in like um, in Asia because they, they they're almost functional. They might not make any sense, but they're relatively bland. And because I, because I've been treated to like the true heart of Godfrey Ho, where he's splicing films together, caring not for aspect ratio, uh, and you know not putting things in frame and so on. It's when it's set in like modern times that's what you need, or the future, or like in space. It's when it's just these, like, like even the ninja films. As long as they're set now, they're fine, they're good fun. But this one and the other one I watched. It, again, it was like relatively standard until the last 10, 15 minutes. So I'm, begin- I'm beginning to kind of really put my Godfrey Ho enjoyments in order now. Uh, another thing 
that I just remembered about it is that it literally steals the music from Battlestar Galactica, the original series. So, no. and apparently yeah, this is quite standard for him. It's just to yeah, yeah. just take someone else's music. The, the um, Star Wars music is one of the other ones I've seen. Actual Star Wars music, really low quality, obviously, and like really hissy, but um, yeah, amazing stuff. Uh, so brilliant. Well, I've actually got a few others that aren't horror, so I'll, I'll let you do a couple of horrors on the trot, I reckon, so we can okay. you know, get get the quota up. Well, I, I was going to tell you actually that um, I I watched The Shining the other day. Now, obviously, this is one we've I'm sure we've talked about a lot over the years, yeah. but. Um, I watched it in the Angel Hotel, which is the oldest hotel in Cardiff. So it was like a mm. special screening. That's quite nice. cool. So yeah, it's just an excuse to watch The Shining again, really, which is fine. Um, now, I'm not going to go through all this, you know, all of the, the plot and everything. I think people probably seen this one. But I, think you've, I, I believe you've genuinely written a book about this. So you, yeah. could just, you could just read out chapters from your book. Um, so... But I always notice something different. And um, and I think, I mean, obviously, we, we know that it's a, a good movie. Well, I think what was what hit me this time is it, I, it was a reminder that it's a really scary movie, like which sounds obvious. But actually, I suppose I spent so many years like intellectualizing it that actually just enjoying it as a scary movie is pretty cool. And the editing is just insane in the film because, of course, it hasn't got a score. It's got it's a load of pre-existing music. So they edited the film to the music, not the other way around, which is it. So it becomes like an almost like a, it gives the film a rhythm, which other films wouldn't necessarily have because of course it's got to the actions sort of meet the music. And so they're edited that way. So that's pretty cool. Um, I think the spoiler alert, but it's over 20 years old. Um, <laughs> Just, the death of Halloran, the cook, I think is a stroke of genius because for the time anyway, because actually in the book, Halloran is the savior. So what Kubrick does is he builds him up in the film to be the savior. She so keeps cutting back to him, keeps coming back to him like he's going to. And it's all a question of will he get there, you know, get there in time. And of course, Wendy is literally inches from death when he arrives. It's the whole here's Johnny thing, and he arrives and saves the day. But of course, he doesn't, does he? Because he gets he takes an axe to the heart, doesn't he? So he does get. It was a rough time, didn't he? It's such yeah. a harsh thing to happen. He's come so far. Um, uh, <laughs> something else I want to say about it is I think the UK cut of this film is better than the US cut. The US cut is some 10, 15 minutes longer, but I think the pacing's way better on the UK cut. And every scene feels vital. There's no additional twaddle. So that's good. Something I noticed this time, which I never noticed before, is that Wendy does all of the work, right? <laughs> she does the meals. She does all the parenting. She does the running of the hotel. And it gives Jack's whole speech and, the you know, the all work and no play thing an air of the absurd, which is, it makes it kind of funny. Uh, and I think it's a film about, white male supremacy i think it's about class privilege and entitlement i think there are there's a reference to it everywhere there's a whole thing about the defeating the native americans is jack going on about white man's burden it's all the racial slurs there's the, the duty of jack to correct not just his meddling wife but the meddling cook um and of course jack is he is 
he holds the kind of spirit of the privileged socialite because of course in 1921 when the famous picture is taken again it's like that was him in his element i.e you know like no no need to work just enjoy yourself and like drink as much as you want because that was that was the world that kind of spirit existed in but of course in the modern reality of like the late 1970s he's just a work shy alcoholic that's what he does so he just doesn't doesn't fit in anymore um the world has changed now yeah so i did watch it in an old hotel now i'm pretty sure that these sorts of screenings are just distracting more than anything i mean there's a reason why cinemas are just a big dark room really isn't it to remove any distractions so i'm not sure it really helps being in that setting because it's not even like it's a particularly scary hotel it's just a nice hotel really. well it's a travel lodge isn't it yeah so when you say when you say that jack torrance is just a workshop alcoholic i think that's reflected in the scene where he sat with the owner of the hotel the manager and he says uh, so so mr torrance what have you done before this and he says oh you know wash some windows uh, t- I took my nan's dog for a walk, borrowed a fiver off my nan, and he's like, "That is, no is actually what he does." <laughs> oh, oh, really? Because he's going on about he's having a go at his wife about like how he just can't get a decent job, and he's going, "What do you want me to do? Work in a car wash?" And it's like he's basically so kind of useless. He just doesn't belong in this era. He where, where he really wants to be is just hanging around with socialites in 1920s, living at large. Um, right, so yeah, The Shining's slightly above average. So, what's yeah. your what's your ne- what's your next Halloween horror special? Halloween horror special. Um, well, uh, there's quite I've got quite a few, but I'm I, I'm aware that Good. we need to. Yeah. Um, no, no, there's no need for it's a horror special. I'm happy to okay. put mine on until next week. Okay. Well, let me talk about something which is kind of a horror, but uh, and it's and it's also a new one. This is a cinema film called Don't Worry, Darling. Again, this is where we have a title of a film where you feel like you should be saying it a certain way. So don't worry, darling. It's like yeah, well, yeah. So um, it's it's Olivia Wilde's latest film. She made Booksmart in 2019, and this one it, it's been overshadowed by tedious non-intrigue on the set. Yes, but, yeah, yeah. Um, but in itself, it's quite a interesting blend of sci-fi and social allegory and psychological horror so ostensibly the plot is about an idyllic 1950s picket fence community called victory and florence Pugh and harry styles uh characters they have this idealized 50s lifestyle so she's the homemaker he works and then they meet in the evenings to have sex on the dining room table uh, but she is starting to go mad. So she's seeing strange images, experiencing weird dreams and having mental absences. So anyway, Victory, the town, is a brainchild of uh, someone called Frank, played by Chris Pine, he, who's this almost like cultish personality who seems to know. He seems to know that something's going on with uh, Florence Pugh's character and. And then another lady attempts suicide in front of her and Alice is determined to uncover the secrets of the town. Uh, I'd say sort of spoilerish, but there are shades of 
the Truman Show, the Matrix and Westworld, but also stuff like Revolutionary Road as well. And I think the depiction of spiraling madness is nicely portrayed. Gives you a real sense of someone losing their grip on reality Uh, because it doesn't just it's not just weird images, but she kind of like have whole absences and appear, find herself in a completely different place. And all the while, she's just being crazily gaslit. And I think Florence Pugh's really good. She was in Midsummer as well. Chris Pine is very creepy as the charming overlord of the community. He makes these impressive and ridiculous speeches about maintaining order and resisting chaos. Uh, apparently, he's based on Jordan Peterson, although can't really see that because uh, I thought Jordan Peterson was all about balancing order and chaos. But this is all about pure order and eliminating chaos. But anyway, so but the real problem with the film is Harry Styles. Uh, now, I think what we have here is a, a Wall Street problem. This is the Wall oh. Street effect. So remember the Wall Street effect is the Wall Street effect. I like that. Is that an actual term? That is the term we have coined on this very show. So the Wall Street effect is this is a reference to the fact that Tom Cruise was the original choice for the main role of Wall Street. And Wall Street's a really good film, really well written, really well made. It's got a great cast, except for the person who was meant to be Tom Cruise. And that is Charlie Sheen, who just hasn't got, you know, he hasn't got the chops and he hasn't got he hasn't got the Tom Cruise effect. And Tom Cruise would be perfect for Wall Street because, of course, it's part of that. Tom is very much quintessential Tom Cruise arc, isn't it? It's like the cocky young buck who gets drawn into his own hype, but then ends up falling from grace and then learning a lesson, etc. Anyway, so the problem here is Harry Styles, because Shia LaBeouf is meant to play him in fact I think he started on the film and so Shia LaBeouf was going to be in his role and Shia LaBeouf would have been perfect for this because um there's a lot of heavy lifting to do in the role and and you know like there's a lot of repressed rage stuff going on and then actual rage and so I think Shia LaBeouf would have been quite brilliantly unhinged but alas we're not we haven't got that we've got a non-actor who's Harry Styles who looks fine but I just eat you know, because Florence Pugh and Chris Pine are so good that this it doesn't really work alongside them. It doesn't ruin the film, which is pretty classy and intense thriller, I would say. And it's kind of a feminist piece of work, I suppose. It's more about toxic masculinity or, you know, I'm sure there are lots of alpha males who'd be bothered by this, but there's a, but it's quite a specific type of toxic masculinity it's it's talking about it's not saying that all men are 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 like this in particular it's saying there's a specific type of man who probably does long for something like this so yeah i don't know why anyone would get het up about that it's a good movie uh but yeah just wish they could have hired an actor as opposed to a pop singer. Yes. I mean, he's trying his hardest. And fair play. I mean, this is, you know, probably his highest profile role to date. So, and it's not, you know, it's not just like a romantic comedy. So that's, so kudos for that. But I just wish it had been Shia LaBeouf. 
Ah, fair enough. But worth a watch. So, what's next in your list then? Oh, what's next? What's next? Let's jump to uh, one that I'm excited to talk about, which is called Terrifier, which I watched on Rakuten, the worst streaming service. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Dude, I've heard a lot about this, I think. Yeah, I'd heard a lot about it, and it, it, I saw the kind of front cover, and it was just like a creepy clown. I thought, meh. It's kind of ten a penny these days, aren't they? These creep clowns. Now, but okay. Now, I was pleasantly, very pleasantly surprised by this. First of all, it's set over one night in one location. Good. That's yeah. good enough for me. That's all I need. Uh, and there's this crazed silent killer who's stalking the LA streets, wearing very creepy clown makeup. And when this girl goes for a pee in an abandoned apartment building she and the other handful of residents are stalked by this deadly clown and he loves killing people it's very simple <laughs> and it plays to its strengths it's it feels like an homage to john carpenter with a, a good bit of friday the 13th as well the cinematography the lighting the music a pure carpenter and like to the point where some shots you can just imagine carpenter framing like it's got that classic like halloween thing of where you have like a, a character in the foreground to the side of the frame uh, and in the background you have this like a huge black empty space looming there and mm. carpenter did that really well to kind of like it's like what is in that space what's going to jump out in that space it's cool and i it, it's like it's a film terrifier is a film that it 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 knows what horror is all about that it's a very sensational thing that it it plays with multiple sensations as movies so obviously it's got the sight part but also there are bits where you can practically like smell like the the disgusting production design makes it easy almost smell stuff and and of course then there's the excellent sound design as well uh it's unbelievably gory like there's a scene well i'll just mention bone tomahawk to you and you'll know the kind of thing that's gonna happen uh, um apparently the sequel's even more disgusting so anyway so the clown whose name is art he is a figure of absolute just malice and he's he he's mute like michael myers but he but difference is he absolutely delights in pain and fear um so he's really creepy he does this like silent laugh thing when he sees people so he start laughing but because he's not making a sound which is creepy in itself and and i think what sets him apart from other slasher villains is that performative aspect of him like he's an overacting mime pulling like over the top expressions and doing ridiculous movements um so yeah it is a scary movie like there's like there's weird images in it like when you just see art on its miniature bicycle riding around in circles it's just creepy that stuff so that's good um <laughs> and then it's got like really really jet black humor like this early scene where someone this girl mocks art the clown by taking a selfie with him this is before he starts killing people she takes a selfie with him and then later on he just <laughs> disembowels her and then takes a selfie with her body just like in return so it's like really gross like mirroring uh and uh what else is there there's 
I, I think I think it's, what it does well is, as well is it has a script. I mean, it's a simple script, but what it constantly does is it throws in tiny surprises just to mix things up. Like it has this framework of familiarity, but there are all these little micro twists along the way. Um, and even one massive narrative U-turn in the middle. And I think the script is one of the things that's been criticised uh, by critics. And But I think it's about efficiency. It's like with a horror movie, it's like how can the characters be introduced with a minimum level of empathy and believability whilst also setting the scene and setting the stakes? And I think this does enough. I think the one thing it lacks compared with John Carpenter is, uh, which I hope would hope that the sequel maybe can bring to it, is that added layer of kind of like folk or urban mythology, because the best Carpenter movies always had that when you think about it, like, like The Fog and um, and it, Halloween as well and Prince of Darkness, they all had that kind of like quite rich mythology behind it simple events happening on screen but quite a rich mythology to kind of flesh it out if you see what i mean and mm. a sort of underlying law to garnish everything i think that's just the only part that's missing so basically yeah terrify is it's essentially a 80 slasher with more gore and higher production values and I will uh, be watching the sequel when it's. I out. was going to say you're going to you're going to watch that with your eyes. Yeah, I read that that's uh, where people are like fainting and spewing everywhere. Yeah, uh, they always say that. They said that about the Blair Witch Project and Dances with Wolves, and and the sequel Dances with Men. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well uh, come on, this is horror the time. Sequel, going. Dancing with Ted Danson. Um, Dan, dancing with dancing. <laughs> All right. It, it would be so if 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 it was like Kevin Costner like waking up in a in like a, te- a teepee in like the, the wilderness and looking up just seeing a figure on the horizon, and then he's like the wolves will gather around him and he's like, hang on, I, is that not here? Is that that's Ted dancing? And that's it. The film slowly. Well, if it's Godfrey Ho, smash cut, loads of really loud music, and then back to the DVD menu. <laughs> loads of really loud music <laughs> stolen from another film. <laughs> um, am I still? Am I still on a roll here? Then? Is that, was yeah, that please. I, I need you to go through every film you've got there. <laughs> okay. Um, well, in that case, I'll, I'll cover off uh, another sort of horror movie called Blonde, which is on Netflix. You wouldn't think this is a horror movie. Because, of course, this is the Marilyn Monroe biopic. Um, so, yeah, this is Andrew Dominic's fictionalised account of the emotional and physical demise of Marilyn Monroe. And I realised that Andrew Dominic's only directed four movies in his career so far. He did Chopper, um, Assassination of Jesse James, Killing Them Softly, and now this. That's it. Like, and he, oh, he hosted Games Master as well, didn't he, back in the 90s? Um, so out, out of those films, I think uh, Killer Them Softly is my favourite. I'm a big fan of Jesse James. Yeah, so, you, you've uh, always enjoyed being bored and looking at landscapes, haven't you? Yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> uh, it's the, the myth of the American West. I love it. But that's, I mean, that's a movie with, like, layers to it about celebrity culture and stuff. Anyway, this is 
Isn't that the one with Casey Affleck, like yeah. talking really eloquently and clearly so everyone can hear him? No, even the ones at the back through the entire film. Um, got you, got you, got you. God, the music in that film is absolutely beautiful. That's uh, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis, of course, who also do the music for Blonde. So, stars Anna de Armas, um, who's good. Uh, and actually, I was wondering whether, because I was wondering whether her accent was going to be distracting or not, but actually. She does a really good, basic rendition of Marilyn Monroe. Her accent is barely audible, to be honest. So, um, I think it's it's a little bit one note. I'd say this film. Just be warned about that. It's just abject misery and total victimhood the entire way through. So, uh, but the way it it's not structured in the usual biopic kind of way. I mean, it is vaguely chronological, I suppose, but the way it throws you from scene to scene with no contextualising at all, it really does give you the sense of someone completely out of control, someone who just doesn't have control over their life at all. They're just thrown from one situation to the next and being controlled by others a lot of the time. And uh, as a a film which is going to inform you about Marilyn Monroe's life, probably quite limited, but as an allegory, I suppose, about the way that celebrity mean can chew up someone vulnerable and spit them out. It's very effective. A little bit disingenuous, perhaps, at times, because she is presented as really a very passive victim at all times. And I'm wondering, are we really saying that Marilyn Monroe wasn't an active agent at any point seeking out some opportunities here? Because I'm not sure about that. But anyway, um, I don't know. It's uh, I. I quite like Nick Cave analysis and more analysis score, uh, but I think it's definitely typical of their more recent output. And I, I'm not into their very very spare electronic textures so much, so it, it hasn't got a lot of richness. But the editing and cinematography in the film is really really quite stunning, and the use of uh, frame sizing uh, is really cool. The, like the the frame will actually change shape or sort of midway through a scene sometimes like almost as if like the walls are closing in around us that's cool and as Marilyn's mental health declines it effectively becomes a horror movie like there are these really really quite scary scenes towards the end when she's like walking through like these huge crowds and everyone's just looks like they're all like calling out her name and they're all kind of like ecstatic to see her but they all look like they're locked in like these horrendous screams um and and there's this and as she gets into like the drugs and stuff it's she'll have these kind of waking dreams when there's shady characters literally just standing in her bedroom and things and it's like a downward spiral into the abyss really it is long but i never found it boring because it's actually quite fast moving like i said it doesn't bother contextualizing it never says oh this is when she met such and such a producer or whatever it's just onto the next scene. Sometimes you've just got no idea who the person is, but I'm not sure it really matters that much because it's not really for that purpose. Like if you want to find out about Malinois, like dot to dot, then I suppose you just read the Wikipedia article. But this is this is undoubtedly a work of art. Uh, I don't think it's a new perspective on Marinomo even really, because actually it's just doubling down on the same cliches that already exist, like insofar as that she's this... She's seen as an angel corrupted by an evil system that would eventually kill her. So nothing new there as such. But 
as a depiction of spiraling madness as a psychological horror movie it is powerful and worth watching and i don't like biopics but there's something about a, some of my favorite films are biopics because i think it's because i think it's because when they done well or interestingly uh they can be really effective like for example uh what's it called edward love that film completely because it's done in a different way isn't it it's sort of so you're kind of almost like a fantasy biopic where it's like melded yeah. with guesswork and yeah when it's a bit more expression like expressionistic about how like it's almost as if the film itself the the aesthetics and editing of the film are reflective of the person that they're trying to depict and i think that happens in edward and i think it happens here as well because jesse james was the same as well i suppose so but yeah he's definitely andrew dominic knows how to put a film together definitely it won't be for everyone though this one you know it's not one if you want to actually learn about marilyn monroe yeah i think that's where a lot of people have been um because his pre his previous films haven't been like that, have they they haven't been as this one is from what you described. They're kind of sort of thought pieces almost. Uh, but then but then with with them um, with this it does sound like it's leaning more towards something like Nicholas Winding Refn that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not as like we bad, say, intensely boring as <laughs> as Nicholas Winding Refn uh, would have made it. It's it's a lot more fast moving than that. And it's not as s- indulgent as something like Mank, the David Fincher one, mm-hmm. which I'm, which was fine, but it didn't seem to be made for anyone in particular, except himself maybe. Uh, so it's a bit more crowd pleasing than that. No, there's the sequel is apparently going to be called Manky, and it's just about him when he's got an arse infection. <laughs> the poster is just. Massive X covering two buttocks. <laughs> Cartoon bum, my third album. Um, okay, well, keep, keep the horror coming. Come on. Okay. Well, actually, I've, oh. I've 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 got I've got a little Halloween joke for you. I, I thought the other day, not okay. on the spot over a period of weeks. Right. The other day, I was sat in my living room and um, there was a knock on my door and I opened it and it was Steven Seagal. But he was dressed up as like a Dracula, and he said, "I've come to suck at acting." I'll edit that out. <laughs> oh dearie me! Okay, happy Christmas, everyone. Um, all right, let me talk about the sacrament then. Oh, okay. This sounds very good, familiar. Ty West directed this in 2013 uh it's about three vice journalists who go to rural mississippi uh, to visit one of their sisters who is in a remote religious commune called eden parish i've seen this yeah i've seen this when it came out i think it's a found footage movie but don't hold that against it so one of the guys has a pregnant wife at home as well um the commune is headed by someone called the father and the mission statement is that they're escaping the imperialism racism and malevolence of the outside world and enjoying peace and love 
poverty, violence, greed, racism. That is all the stuff that Father saw in the cities and the towns. All of the seven dwarves. <laughs> it has... To me, it felt like it had the feel of early George Romero. Like it had this kind of well-made, raw, kind of ridiculous, socially analogous feel to it. And it, I do think it seems like exactly the movie that Ty West went out to make, which is good. I think the documentary style works pretty well because it's explicitly about journalists chasing stories. So there's a reason for them to be filming stuff. I think the style is quite well implemented and it also because of the documentary style it 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 allows for exposition it gives you a comprehensive understanding of the mechanics of how a commune might function so i think that works pretty well and because they're professionals you don't get too much of the usual overreaction and like forced conflicts to create drama that often happen in cheap fan footage films and there's a really good scene in the middle where they interview the father and it's quite a masterclass of acting actually the way the father rationalizes the commune and dodges legitimate questions and gaslights his interviewer it's like when he's asked for example like why is it that you have all these armed guards around the place and the father shoots back at him he says uh well you would ask about the armed guards as you come from this violent world it's like right that doesn't really answer the question but i can see the point you're trying to make so there's all this stuff about isolationism and distrust of media and the cult of personality and i thought couldn't stop thinking about donald trump to be honest but this obviously precedes donald trump by a few years so it's quite impressive and i like the way there is an actual theme to the thing like it's like when should journalists get involved and step over an ethical line, for example, for the sake of preventing the suffering of what they're observing, you know, because actually the journalists who are there, they can just leave. But of course, that would mean leaving behind one or more people desperate to get out of this commune. There are some issues like it's not really convincing as a slice of reality in terms of scriptural performance. It's also a bit too efficient because it's like it's only less than nine minutes. It's too efficient to really portray like the grip that Father has over his flock. Like in a film like Martha Marcy May Marlene, for example, John Hawkes has a lot of screen time to charm people or at least persuade them. And even you know like someone like uh, Greg Brick's character in Far Cry Five, not a movie, but still quite a classic cult leader. Uh, and he, he probably doesn't have the time here to sh- to pick that. Uh, it, and that's important because actually when it starts kicking off and it, the whole Kool-Aid sequence starts, its impact is a little bit muted because, of course, you're like, well, I'm not convinced yet that they would be following him <laughs> into this madness. But anyway, but the last half hour is definitely disturbing. It's like horror after escalating horror. And I think overall the best way to enjoy the film is to is to take the found footage conceit lightly and pretty much just enjoy it as a regular sort of social realist style film. I liked it. I thought it was good uh, with a few caveats. 
I mean, this is one of those films that, but I, I remember enjoying it at the time because I think I had more of a tolerance for found footage than, than you do. So I remember watching a few of these films and I think there was a part where you just thought enough, but I think it was a few films before me. So I watched this and I remember enjoying it, but I've literally not thought about it since uh, that I can't remember. I can remember a few scattered images in my mind, but nothing else really. Um, and is it, it's one of those films that there are so many movies. Would I, would I return to it again? I, probably not. Possibly not. But if you're in a found footage frenzy, then you could do a lot worse because a triple I mean, F. Yes. I do not like found footage films for the most part. So, uh, uh, yeah. And but this one's one of the better ones, really. One of the handful of quality ones. <clears throat> Before you move on, um, I, have you got uh, Wikipedia up with Ty West? Oh. I don't have Ty West on the screen, but I can. Uh, go to every, everyone listen to this. Go to go to Ty West T I W S T on Wikipedia, and <clears throat> let your eyes drift to the right hand side of the screen. Put a picture of David Baddiel on there for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mixture of David Baddiel, Adam Goldberg, and Adam Sandler, isn't it? That's what that is. That's what that image is with a touch of David Schwimmer, touching Schwimmer. Um, so yeah, I just thought, Christ, it really looks like a meld of those people. So come on, more horror. Okay, we're still going, we're still going. Scrolls, scrolls, scrolls. Well, mine are just um, mine aren't horror, so I, but I feel like uh, we've had a good run of the horror, so I want you know, okay. Um, let's talk about the luckiest girl alive. Or just Luckiest Girl Alive. Uh, which is on Netflix. This, uh, I think it's based on a novel. But yeah, the story focuses on, in the modern day, in this ambitious New York magazine journalist called Annie, played by Myla Kunis, is struggling with a career. She's just writing about sexual health. Deep down, she really wants to write about the trauma she experienced at college, which is namely a gang rape soon hmm. followed by a mass shooting. So, Bloody hell. Yeah, it's universally relatable stuff, obviously. So You know you know that if those events were made into a TV documentary, it would start off with the words, it was just a normal day. And you think, yes, most are until something extraordinary happens, isn't it? <laughs> Um, so yeah, so Annie has been basically repressing all her emotions and it's starting to, the whole time for years and years, and it's starting to manifest itself as anger. So she's meant to be marrying this narcissistic posh twat. And there's a, meanwhile, there's a documentary being made about the school shooting. And one of the victims, who didn't die, but one of the victims is claiming that she was involved in plotting the shooting as kind of revenge for the rape. So anyway, she sh now she really needs to start talking about the event to clear her name. So Myla Kunis is good. She, she's she got this repressed rage thing going on, which is probably quite difficult to depict. And I think for the first two thirds of the film, we've blessed with some quite smart dialogue and some characterization that challenges stereotype. And I like the whole thing uh, she says about reclaiming the word victim because there's something about the word survivor 
that suggests it's just something that's happened without any culpability and there's it, it almost like there's no space for anger there but by calling herself a victim she's saying almost like right this was done to me by conscious human beings who made choices so it's quite an important distinction and and i think it quite admirably portrays the complex emotional aftermath of catastrophic trauma so it's a real pity that it ends up being wasted on such a trite conclusion we'll get to that the the actual school shooting scene sequence really is so absurd that it's hard to take seriously it unfolds like the players are actually performing in a school play and Hmm. it just cannot deliver the impact that like these imaginary victims would deserve but the real problems start from that moment onwards when you realize actually what the victory that annie is trying to achieve is purely reputational like i think there could have been a really smart and morally ambiguous story here uh, about her motivations and stuff but it's clear that we're simply meant to revel in the joy of her article going viral like that's basically what it comes down to like a sh- there's a shot of her like looking in the mirror faced with all various reflections which could have been the perfect ending almost like suggesting you know like the different versions of me which version have i have i portrayed the real version of me or am i just doing this for attention but instead we have this awful tacked on message montage which deliberately strips away any moral ambiguity at all now i don't know how the book ends but surely there must have been a bit more nuance than this because this is just it it's like i mean the topic of victimhood is an interesting one because you've got partly because you've got the increased awareness of victims since something like the me too movement but also because of uh the increasing tendency especially with social media and stuff to to almost play victim olympics and it's that second part that's missing here because there's a complete lack of self-awareness a lack of irony a lack of irony in using this double victimhood to unquestioningly prop up this dumb girl boss narrative and it's really it's like it's a well-made and well-acted film but it's also so absurd and completely lacking any any ambiguity or even moral curiosity and in the end it's actually quite tasteless it's quite an astonishing collapse in the last third because <coughs> it looked wow. all right up until that point but wow yeah oh, indeed uh i guess it's trying to aim for the kind of it called gone girl crowd but oh right but gone girl had actual moral ambiguity in it this has nothing um, no that doesn't appeal to me then i'm not gonna watch that it's on netflix now if anyone really wants to watch <laughs> you've been reading i'm impressed by Milo kunis because i've really paid any attention to it before I know her more as a as a voice actor, and she's done okay. a lot of TV stuff in there. But um, you you you've really spent a lot of time on Netflix, just with the occasional the occasional yeah, adventure to Rakuten, the worst streaming service. It's true. I don't think I've got any Prime at all this month. Oh really? No, don't think so. But what have you got next? 
Well, I've got one more. Okay. And it, which is a legit horror. And this one we've definitely talked about before on this uh, podcast called uh, The Block Island Sound, which is uh, yes, yes. Netflix. So this is like a coastal mystery thriller of 2020. And uh, just to recap, uh, this young angry man lives on an island community with his ailing father who's drinking heavily and sleepwalking and sleep fishing it seems and the father keeps hearing this strange growling sound which always amused me because i kept expecting the character on the screen to like clutch their stomach and then go and eat a pasty or something but it is not their stomach it's something awful out at sea and and genuinely, actually, one of the symptoms of the mania that's gripping him is gathering food as well. So that would have been ideal. So anyway, the young guy's <laughs> sisters come to stay. And it's no great spoiler to reveal that the father then disappears and is treated as a death. But the son is unable to let go. And then he starts hearing his tummy rumble, too, and starts experiencing the same stuff as his father. A call to the ocean. A call to the ginsters. Call to the fridge. Um, (laughs) Distractingly, by the way, the main guy is named Harry, and he looks a lot like Prince Harry. Oh, really? He really does. Uh, It's solidly directed, nicely shot. If you can come to terms with that, the standard, like, muted Netflix filter thing. Uh, It very much looks like a Netflix movie. Um, the music is very annoying. It's it's sort of generic placeholder horror music, but also far too dramatic and foreboding for what's actually on the screen. Uh, so it felt a bit incongruent. Um, now what's yeah, happening? Yeah, and it's, it's like you'll just like someone like looking out of a window and it'll go whoa whoa whoa. Yes, whoa, like, whoa, yeah. whoa. I think something yeah. more subtle might have worked better, but uh, it's I. There's a mystery element to it, okay? So it's the kind of mystery where the audience isn't really involved because we've got nothing to go on. So it's just a series of very gradual reveals. We essentially see we see the dad experience some weird stuff uh, without actually seeing it ourselves. But then the son experiences the same stuff, but we see more of it. Uh, and I found the mystery a bit repetitious constant scenes of this guy waking up somewhere with no memory or discovering car damage with no memory and then a lot of questions and accusations and it just sort of repeats that that formula um <laughs> waking up with no memory of what happened but always holding a hammer when he looks at the hammer on like the face of the metal part on the circle it's got a smiley face and on the and then written written down the handle it says you put this up your bum and he's like, oh, I must, I must have put this up my bum and drawn a smiley face on it or something. It's up my Gary Glitter. Um, um, <laughs> so it's it's kind of grounded on the surface, but it has some unbelievable scenes. Like like there's a scene where one of the sisters goes to see a complete stranger, right? It's trying to uncover the mystery. She goes to see this complete stranger in a mobile home at night. And he's a massive guy who's instantly really aggressive and insists that she leaves her mobile phone in the car. And she's like, oh, all right, then, yeah, fine. I think that's a bit of a red flag, to be honest. So it's, it does occasionally fall into the screenwriting trap of manufacturing some forced drama as well. Like the siblings are so needlessly argumentative with each other. It's almost laughable at times. Like 
I, I think that that part of it can be that's lazy writing. I don't think it yeah, needs it, 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 that. It's literally to the effect because I remember this quite clearly. Like she'll she'll walk out into the living room and he's sitting there eating toast and she'll say, "Do you want to come up for lunch?" He'll go, "I've eaten toast," and they'll just argue. Yeah, <laughs> like, like doesn't really. There's a like there's a scene where the son, who lest we forget, has just lost his father and is evidently struggling. He messes up a food order at the funeral, um, and then gets into a fight. And it's all instant accusations and shouting and disappointment with him. But I was thinking, where it, surely there should be someone here at this family event, this funeral, where, you know, this kid's just lost his dad. Surely there's someone there to empathize, empathize or comfort him. You think, you know, clearly there's something wrong if, you know, getting the food order wrong. OK, any, that could happen to anyone. Getting into a fight, clearly that shows that he's really struggling. So... And like even like he gets gets arrested for the way and that and when he's in the police cell the police officer is even bear in mind that he's just come from his father's funeral the police officer is mocking him in the cell and it's like why are these people just needlessly unrealistically unpleasant uh it, that's forced that's just bad writing isn't it that's, yeah that's not so good uh, there's some yeah it's it's atmospheric i'd say without being scary as such like uh it's more it's more about a foreboding atmosphere. Like, it's not about what's happening. It feels like it's about what's about to happen. Um, um, and I'm not sure. I think the endings, it feels a bit like a cop-out. It literally just lifts some dialogue from an earlier conversation and overlays well, this, it on the, a final image. This is, is exactly what I was going to say, right? Because I think the film should have ended a few seconds before and i think it would have been vastly improved by taking out the final voiceover yeah. because it's just it, it's like i thought it was really clever and i was like i, I kind of clicked what was happening what the situation was it was all made sense in my mind and then someone just oh, spoke to me to explain what was happening and i thought it was astonishing that's it's really so it, yeah if what it felt like was something added at the behest of like an interfering studio but of course this is an independent film there's no way a studio would have come along and i mean i don't know who i don't know what the studio maybe it was netflix themselves but there's no way a studio would have come along and said right not enough of the audience is going to understand this after watching this low budget <laughs> independent slow burn horror thriller so therefore we need this voiceover at the end to explain everything really didn't need it and it and it actually almost ruins the film because as you say it kind of wraps itself up perfectly well in a final ish scene but then it just has to take the extra step and patronize us and i thought no i think you probably like this film more than me i i think oh, okay. of, um I, I i don't think i was just drawn in by the mystery enough and I think what's disappointing as well is the fact that it sh I should love a film like this because I love the setting, the coastal setting, because I love the fog, John Carpenter film, obviously. Uh, and I love that kind of like, there's something weirdly, I don't know where this is set. I mean, I, I don't know, what, is it, uh, I'm not sure if it's East Coast or West Coast, to be honest, but I don't know. I love, I love coastal horrors. I, I think as well, what, of them. 
I think so if you're an atmosphere, if you're like, yeah, it's kind of like isolated but still rich landscapes. Um, I think maybe the reason I like this is because I watched it before I was a parent, so I think that being a parent and having that that uh, view on on how parenting works at a fundamental level. Now, when it's like like you say with the, with a kid in this, and it's just glaring. I would just find it irritating, and I think that would chip away at my enjoyment. It's just where, kind of like when you know, an, an, an inverse example would be where you're watching a film where it's like dialogue between teenagers written by clearly like a, a screenwriter, a white screenwriter in his sixties, writing for like uh, you know two two young girls or whatever, and it just it's just not right. It's not how people talk. It's not how people those people would act. I think in, in a film where like I I know how parenting works, and then the the kids being clearly treated really badly and in not and in a completely unrealistic way against against yeah. how the rest of the film is working around him i would just think it's just awkward writing it's just it's not believable at all yeah like you know it, it feels like at some with some films at some points during the like the, the drafting process it's like oh let's just let's just remove this because it's just distracting or or i don't have the ability to write to that character um it is East Coast. It's Rhode Island, so it's uh, Atlantic. But yeah, it's I like I like the setting. I just wish more had been done with it. Uh, um. So yeah, I. So that's all of your horror then, is it? That is everything I think. Um. Today. I I've got a couple. I just want to quickly mention. Just two minutes. Um. The, of the, this is a couple of films I really wanted to talk about, but I'll do it next time because they, they just take too long now. But um, for the first time ever, mm. I watched Hocus Pocus 1 and 2 because okay. Faye's Fa- <coughs> a big fan of them. I've never seen them, and obviously the sequel was actually fancied it. <coughs> and we watched them back to back, and um, Faye was completely, like, like, the first film she was really, like, lost in the nostalgia of it. And it was quite nice to see. Um, and she was sort of really rediscovering it and... Um, telling me how her and her friend would have like quotes from the films they see to each other and parts of the songs they sing to each other and I thought this was quite nice because she was kind of talking about Hocus Pocus like I have other friends again I've never seen the Goonies male friends would talk about the Goonies and quote the Goonies and I thought that was quite cool like a female perspective on nostalgia from the 80s or 90s and I enjoyed it and I, I enjoyed it because she was enjoying it so much and it just seemed like a sort of silly fun kooky like kitty horror sort of thing and that was cool. And then the second film happened, and um, <laughs> and it, it was just it it was just a retread, like it was a, a a tired retread. And I think after it finished, even Faye was we watched them back to back. Said yeah, it just felt like it, it was just the, the same thing, really. It and it it wasn't the first film isn't strong enough on its own to kind of warrant a revisit. Uh, it's it's like if you want to watch, no one's been begging out for Hocus Pocus two, have they? Really? Yeah. Uh, it seems like um, too much time has passed. And, and also, yeah. Well, this is the thing. I don't know what Bette Midler is, and I'm not sure the 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 other person's name in it. I think she was in Sister Act. Um, but Sarah Jessica Parker, it, the makeup in this film was not complimentary to her, and it just. Going from the first and the second, you think, well, like in the first one, she's like a striking sort of dopey, attractive witch, which works. In the second one, it they needed to speak to make a bastard and say, you're making me look very odd. Like, not, not witchy, odd. I need to get this sorted. Um, and, 
yeah, it just it, the second one just had a kind of had a few funny fish out of water moments um, where they make you know they're obviously back and they everything's completely new to them again a retread of the first film but it just didn't have the charm of it it felt kind of perfunctory and so that that's fine and then with my young son I he's into dinosaurs at the moment right nothing to do with horror this by the way and so I went on Amazon Prime where everyone goes and I typed in Jurassic and Jurassic Park came up but they were I think they were all either on uh, on they were all paid and I was like oh, I don't really want to pay to watch Jurassic Park because it's just for him and there was one called Jurassic Island, and I clicked on it, and I thought, well, it's just going to have some bad CG dinosaurs. You'll have a whale of a time. I sat down, and uh, the film just did this sort of cold open, set in an arcade, and I thought, fine, get a look at some arcades. And it started off with these three completely screaming women in this arcade. One one of the guys gets sucked into a machine, and then years later, his sister and two girls go in to rescue him. And... It starts off going and they're going through and they're meeting this guy and there's sharks raining on the beach. And, and I thought, this dinosaurs yet. And then they start getting chased by monsters. And then there's a king who has lived in this virtual arcade for years and has taken over. And then they, and it's all very low budget, very cheap and very asylum pictures, quite frankly. And I thought, there's no dinosaurs in this. This is, I don't watch the right film. And I, you know, press the B button on the Xbox board. And I said, no, this is Jurassic Island. And then at the end of the film, I was thought there was no dinosaurs in that. Like that wasn't Jurassic Island. That was bizarre. And and then I watched all of the credits. And at the end of the credits, it said, you know, blah, 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 Jurassic Island. And I thought, oh, that doesn't seem right. So I went online, found out one of the actress's names and eventually found out it's actually a film called The Final Level Escaping Rancala because Rancala is this world. And it's an Asylum Pictures play on... Um, Jumanji. Yeah. But they've used the wrong reels at the start and end of the film. It says they've just put the wrong credits on the film effectively and given it the wrong title. Um, And I thought, again, it's another moment, much like The Dark with, um, oh, I always forget his name, William Devane, where it was just like such a bad and listenable transfer that Amazon just seemed to have no quality checking as to what they put on there. Like I've had, I've had, we keep going back. <laughs> I've had films where like the subtitles don't match, as in they're from a different film. I've had it where like the, this one, the credits are wrong. Sometimes you have it where the screen will just go blue and there's just scenes missing and no one seems to have noticed. Like they're putting films on there without anyone actually watching them. You know, beforehand, it's it's ama- it's it's amazing, is what it is. It's the kind of thing I'd expect from Rakuten, with bullet in the head in the classic section. But um, yeah, but you, reviewing it as its own film, it's total crap like a really lazy typical asylum shit where it's too winky and self-aware to even be enjoying and also at the end of it it just throws in just like a lesbian kiss for no reason it's like the director just said at the end look no one's gonna watch this film so you may as well just snog so i get a semi um and no need for it at all it's just crap total crap and i just think that's the problem with all the sharknado-y films it's just it's like it's almost like the, the 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 highlight of the film is the title, you know, ha ha, tornado sharks, oh, terrible, terrible, cheap shit. So you've had a far better Halloween in terms of movies than I have. You've had some really good stuff there. Yeah. I, um, I think what, we watched Hocus Pocus. Too, oh it? yeah. It was what do you think about the it? Same. It was pretty much the same emotional trajectory, but uh, yeah. yeah, real fondness for the first one, which is quite charming. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's like kind of forgettable and very slight, but you know, 
it's fine for for what it is at the time i just think it's a weird like a sequel now and to be retreading the original i think that's a dangerous game it's playing like i yeah. get that they want to it's for the fans of the original i guess but if you start yeah calling back then you you what you're doing is you're inviting direct comparisons with the original and of course it's never going to be quite as good it's never going to quite have the same energy if they really had to do something like that probably could have shaken it up a bit you know done something completely different rather than just rehash but yeah it's a little bit depressing the funniest part of the film for me was at the start when they meet the witch in the forest in the second one and the the talking to her and she says oh you're not like the other children that i've eaten met I just like clearly eaten it. So that was, but then you're know, like, that's the first 10 minutes, you know, that can't be the highlight. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah so, uh, yeah, I've got three films left, but four films, but they're, they're not horror. So I'm, I won't go through them on a Halloween special. Um, so my film of the week, I would say, it's not alien intruder. Like I know, I know we don't do like the worst film of the week, but that would be it. Um, I really, I really like the first power, yeah. um, and I, I like that really appealed to the kind of action horror. I still need to watch Hellbound with Chuck Norris, and Psycho Two is kind of a quirky. I was, I really enjoyed that, like t- to a point, uh, and Scanner Cop was kind of silly fun. But the, I know the Night Flyer is isn't the best film, but I think because Miguel Freire has passed away, it, it like you say, it's one of his few leading roles, and I like the the whole vampiric concept, and he is such a watchable, lovably loathsome character in that film. Yeah. Like the way he talks to everyone is such disgust. So, yeah, and it, and it just feels like, like you say, it's just him in a plane shouting at people and then going to these like, just really barren airfields yeah. talking to and hillbillies. He's so reluctant. He's, until he becomes utterly obsessed, he's completely reluctant. But I love, yeah, he's just... Because, you know, we talk about, like, anti-heroes and, like, you know unpleasant characters but you kind of the expectation is is that they will learn and grow as the film goes on and kind of soften up and their icy shell will kind of fall or melt away but <laughs> that's not what this film's about he's he's deeply unpleasant and then becomes obsessively unpleasant uh so that's his arc it's just become like even worse than he was at the beginning Brilliant. And if and if you can watch the film, um, you should you should do it with headphones or with like a good sound bar or something because his voice is, f- is so fantastic and rich. I, know, I, could, oh, I could have just a, I could have a ferric tape of that playing in my ears. I've got to sleep. That'd be amazing. Um, I wonder if you Miguel Freire's like um, ferric tape soothing sessions. Um, so what's your yeah? What's your film of the week? I mean, obviously The Shining is one of my faves. Um, we but, should stop talking about that fucking shitty film. <laughs> It's not as good as the TV series, mate. Uh, which I've also seen, which Stephen King himself preferred. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm gonna, but I'm gonna go with Terrifier because that really surprised nice. me because I don't like. I see these films pass before my eyes when I'm flicking through the horror section on various streaming services, and they're just so generic looking. It's like, oh, there's a clown. Oh, there's a a woman screaming or there's someone with hair over their face it's like all right these are all variations of the theme and to be honest looking at terrifying art the clown you could be 
you wouldn't be blamed for thinking, well, this just looks like another generic slasher. But it's made by someone who clearly adores John Carpenter, but also wants to bring that style up to date. And I'm really looking forward to the sequel, which apparently is considerably longer. So hopefully it can correct the one issue I did have with it, which is that it hasn't don't have the kind of folklore aspect that I love about Carpenter movies. So Car- copy boy. Copy boy. So, yeah, uh, Terrifier. Nice. It is. It is hard. It is hard. Like you see, you're scrolling through, especially when you're in the mood for a horror film, and you're scrolling through, the and there's just images of people screaming or like uh, someone's ensconced in shadow, and you think, I don't know what any of this means, and you know you can't rely on anything on any streaming service. So, um, yeah. So it is nice that you say terrifier is one that just think, oh, you know, skip past that. But it's good that, and that sometimes it's good to find those that you you and I people watch these things to bring them up because they could just get lost in the cracks yeah it well it's almost easy. like they you know you get hidden gems sometimes they're hidden in plain sight like this one it's the kind of thing you just skip past but definitely worth stopping on because i think this is one to watch the director I can't actually remember his name at the moment but we can find out very quickly thanks to the power of the internet Damien Leone is, oh, is there. Enough. So he wrote and directed that. And uh, yeah. And yeah, I'm going to check out his other stuff. Do you um, think Do you think that Terrifier would have been improved upon if they had taken a leaf out of like the De Niro What Just Happened films book and instead of calling it Terrifier said, called it something like What's Happening to Them? think so i definitely think a film title that poses a question forces you to say it with the pronunciation of a question yes they're always the best films what just happened yeah yeah because if you were like if you were like if you had an open plan living room and kitchen right so you know i don't know your other half's like pouring drinks in the kitchen and, and the tv's facing away from me and you're flicking through the channels and you said to her like so you'd have two you'd, you'd say right do you want to watch i don't know do you want to watch commando or do you want to watch total recall or do you want to watch eraser so let boom 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 or you'd have to say do you want to watch what just happened or who's that or was that you then You'd have to like put these inflections in your voice to make them make sense in, in, in saying them out loud to someone. <laughs> was that you then would clearly a bit about farts, wouldn't it? <laughs> so it was that me and the sequel's that me. <laughs> um, so yes, it's time now for the uh, the Halloween Arkans Dar. I feel like we should do two people from horror franchises. I think it would be best, wouldn't it? Um Right. Okay. Miguel Ferrer. Yeah, that sounds fine. Um, I'm not going to say, I was just about to say Meg Tilly. That caused all <laughs> kinds of problems last time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's been the hardest one yet, like the Meg Tilly thing. And every time I got a message saying, what was she in? I'm like, duh, masquerade with Rob Lowe. <laughs> Highlight uh, of her career, where she's in a room with just everything is just peach. Such an awful bedroom. Who did you just say? So Miguel Ferrer. Miguel Ferrer. Okay, to um, Florence Pugh. 
No, oh nice, yeah. So that's a generational thing as well. Yeah. It's it's I I'm saying this now. I reckon for Kino Kingdom sixty three, I'm gonna be saying when I read out the Arkansas results from the audience, Miguel Ferrer was in Robocop. I think they're all gonna start with those words. Well, <laughs> we have mentioned some other films that he's been he's been in. It's true, it's true, it's true. Us, so that's the joy, that's the brilliance of Arkansas. You have to listen to the entire podcast to get any clues about who the hell we're talking about. So, obviously, I hope everyone enjoyed uh, the... the your, it's your turn next year for the yearly Halloween story. Uh, this year was that That's unspeakable right, place. Um, and, yeah, I'm, so are you going to... For me, I've got a few... I've got... Well, to be honest, right, because we've got a couple of minutes left, I was going to say that my brother has just continued to give me piles and piles of films from charity shops with people in. And at the moment, I'm towards the end of The Bad Pack with Robert Darby and Ralph Moller, I've got Jason Blade and Day of the Panther to watch. I'm watching that with him so he can suffer with me. I've got, um, I don't know who this is, <clears throat> Traitor's Heart, and then a martial arts collection with four films on it. And yeah, a couple, a couple of others I watched, which I didn't get around to this time. So I know that you're a huge fan of Halloween and horror, horror season. So are you carrying on the horror love? Yes, although I have also been like obsessively collecting a watch list of obscure like 80s cult films which okay. i've never seen before something that i've never heard of so that'll be interesting mm. um, at least one of them starring stephen lang so oh nice why i clicked on it to be honest um, <laughs> so, yeah so i'm looking forward to that so maybe a little mix mix of horror and weird cult stuff is stephen lang in the arkins bar Yes, I think. Um, I mean, he's such a comedian. I mean, he plays so many different types of roles. But I but think could he could he play someone that I fancy? I don't. I don't I think, think he he's got the old man buff thing going on, which uh, was a little bit off putting in Don't Breathe, I like. But um, especially when he's like, especially when he's like impregnating someone with like a like a turkey baster. Turkey baster, yeah. So that was. Has a laugh. Um, but like in say Avatar, like he's quite clean cut in that and pretty buff. He's got the kind of butchness. He'd throw you around the room. Isn't Avatar a CG film with James Cameron? There is a touch of CG in it, yes, but he is an actual actor. Oh, he's a real person. Yeah, yeah. I just then, a, touch, a touch of CG. <laughs> budget of that film. Yeah, I know it has <laughs> at least four or five pixels in it. <laughs> touch of CG. <laughs> Someone did load up an Amiga 1200 at one point with a 20 megabyte hard drive attached. Yes, um, that's astonishing. Yeah, I don't know if I fancy Stephen Lang. Mm, yeah. So the I Arkansas want to talk to him, but maybe not. Maybe not kiss him. <laughs> it's hard to talk to men without kissing them at some point, isn't it? Um, so yeah, so it's uh, Florence Pugh to Miguel Ferrer. Yes. Nice. Love it. Cool. Okay, dokie then. Well, yeah, have a good week watching your your Kelty these films, and I'll go off and watch Robert Darby. Excellent. Okay. Till the next. Time.